Welcome to the Abundant Wellness with Andrea podcast from surviving to thriving in mind, body, and spirit. Hey there, I'm Andrea Jones, registered nurse, functional hormone coach, inner healing and deliverance pastor, and most importantly, wife and mother of two beautiful girls. This podcast is really a conversation about how to discover and walk in an abundant life that God has laid out for us while processing what I call the messy middle, pain and overcoming things in our life that are hard in order to nurture all of the parts of you so that you can walk in abundant wellness in all areas. Welcome to another episode of the Abundant Wellness with Andrea podcast. In today's episode, we have the immense privilege of having Joshua Moore, licensed mental health counselor and board certified neurofeedback practitioner and owner of Alternative Behavioral Therapies Clinic in Vancouver, Washington, here with us today to talk about trauma, EMDR, and everything in between. So thank you so much for being here today, Josh. I am really excited for this conversation on trauma, um, emotional health, different modalities that we can really use to um, to help people feel better, not only in their bodies, but function better overall, um, regardless of their diagnosis or their personal challenges. So thank you for being on here today. Sure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, why don't we start with sharing a little bit about you and your background and what actually led you to doing what you're doing today? Sure, sure. Um, I, I started off at the age of 21 as a drug and alcohol counselor. I worked in a level five security facility with 54 beds, uh, teenage girls, more than polysubstance abuse, dual diagnosis, um, usually more than more than one run uh, from other facilities. So we were we were kind of the last uh, last ditch, you know, opportunity before they would send these juveniles to adult prison. Wow. And uh, it was a long term facility. So they stayed there for nine months, generally to 18 months. Some managed to break through 18 months quite well. Uh, I don't think anyone ever got out earlier than nine months. <laughs> And uh, I love that job, but uh, that drug and alcohol counseling position really didn't get above $12 an hour pay. Whoa. And it was very, very hard to, um, yeah, <laughs> it was very, very hard to make a living uh, doing that, even though it was a wealth of experience and enjoyable and adventurous and <laughs> you learned a ton yeah. uh, because you'd have kind of all the roughest experiences possible, things I can never repeat right. on a podcast because they're just too yeah. decent, <laughs> right. you know, too too violent or, or, or too good, you know, <laughs> uh, but it really knocks off all the, um, all the triggers and you get really desensitized, which is good as a therapist. So it's a great place for people to start. I don't know that there are any facilities like that out anymore, even in the rest of the United States. I don't know that there are. Wow. Any. I think they all close. Um, so after doing that for a number of years, I joined the army reserves in order to try to maintain some sort of, uh, tolerable lifestyle. You know, I was living in my parents' basement. Okay. <laughs> <as> in, <laughs> didn't go so well. Um, and, uh, ended up working for a bit as the frontline medical receiver for our wounded warriors coming back from Afghanistan and Iraq wow. in uh, DC as a, at Walter Reed. I actually closed the Walter Reed DC clinic and helped moved it to Bethesda. Um, got to spend a lot of time with a lot of interesting politicians and, uh, uh high ranking military members and, uh, got to do mass casualty three days a week, uh, specialist and a combat medic. Wow. And um, they always said, so the average patient, without going into detail, would have an average of two amputees, maybe less, maybe more. Um, so a lot of a lot of uh, damage. And um, maybe they would take a year before we would be able to transition them from the ward to assisted living. And they always said, gosh, I would give the rest of my arms or legs, I would give, you know, I'd give, give what I have left, I'd give what mobility I have, if I could just get my head on straight and they would say that every time we discharge them to assisted living you know they would be fairly comfortable fairly mobile after about a year uh, but that wasn't the most important thing to them maybe right. it was when they thought they were when they first landing maybe it's like oh i want to be able to walk again today and then it became no i want to be able to sleep i want to be able to uh, not panic attacks i want to be able to think clearly again right and uh was that was was clearly most important to them um so I, I got out of the army, uh, came home, and um, 
started looking into other options, ended up doing neurofeedback. And wow. uh, we run a, a PTSD practice uh, and emerging modalities practice. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. And it's, you know, it's when you're talking about that, the the men from Afghanistan coming home, I mm-hmm. had two cousins um, in Iraq and um, they, mm-hmm. you know, just without sharing their personal stories, but I think it's relatable and most of us know enough about that war to know that nobody really came back. Okay. Um, and they were, they were different men and I will just say they were never the same. And, um, and so having modalities like this, that, you know, they're like, we're trying, we've tried all of the different medications. We're going to therapy, we're doing all of the things. And yet I just feel numb or I just feel like I'm, I'm just like this, you know, one out of 10 version of myself, like I'm not functioning to optimal capacity. And so, um, and I think this actually really leads into that question of what is trauma? Because I think that that might be the picture that most people understand. And so then Mm -hmm. they would negate their own trauma because maybe it wasn't like that. And so can you help us to understand, you know, from your perspective, how would you explain How would you explain trauma to somebody? From a neuroscience perspective? Yeah. (laughs) Whichever perspective. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. It it, it is the overexcitability of the central nervous system uh, to the point of failing to integrate short-term memory into long-term processes. Um, Now that's, that's overly simplified, but it's something like that. We have our hippocampus and it's got information. It's really good at sharing that to the amygdala, which is the alarm system in our brain. So you've got you know, our, our short-term, long-term processor, we've got our alarm system. And then we've got like the rest of the brain, most significantly the frontal cortex. And we're trying <laughs> to uh, kind of navigate the world and orient ourselves appropriately. And when everything goes, so my amygdala, campus, and my frontal lobe are all kind of on the same page, I can walk outside, see a hose coiled up, my wife gardening, and maybe for a a fraction of a second, one part of my brain without my knowledge will say that's a snake. Mm. And I won't notice it. And I won't become escalated. I won't have like a pounding heart, my blood pressure won't change. And the reason why is because my frontal cortex jumps on right as fast and says like, no, that's a hose. Mm. And it's like, cool, no problem. I'm completely unaware that my amygdala fired off about the hose, you know, potentially being a snake. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we'll, we'll use a friend of mine, an actual story from a friend of mine. Let's say though, then I go and I travel to another country. Uh, I'm in the military. This wasn't me. This is a friend of mine, yeah. but bit by a snake and, uh, rushed to a hospital and they can't figure out how to numb the poison. They can't figure out how to neutralize the poison. They have to find the exact snake. So all the soldiers are out there trying to find the snake and they have to find the snake that bit him. Otherwise he's going to die. And at, at the final hour, they find the snake, <laughs> they, they get the snake to the hospital and they synthesized the antivenom and he saved just barely. It was a very traumatic experience. Then this person comes home, walks outside. The hose is a different spot because the wife's been gardening. The brain says, that snake, the, the amygdala is firing off, you know, terror, fear of this snake. Mm-hmm. The frontal lobe, because the situation occurred in an escalated situation, uh, the stress hormone cortisol blocks the integration. Mm-hmm. between the hippocampus and the frontal lobe and the frontal lobe it can still shut down the amygdala but it's not as fast because it's not actually talking about the same thing that's oh. just a hose but the message coming from the amygdala was a specific snake and a specific event and a specific fear that wasn't integrated into the rest of the, the cortex wow. and so because we have this disintegration we get a backlog of responsibility in the campus um, that doesn't come integrated into the, the brain, namely the frontal lobe in this case. And um, there's a failure to downregulate the amygdala. <clears throat> and every time we go back to try to process that, which is often in our dreams, maybe it's when we're on about, we become escalated, we get nightmares, we wake up adrenalized. And there's actually a Goldilocks zone where maybe I could process something and integrate it and... Um, but but it's 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 going to be above like a uh, very uh, we'll say a uh, static state because it was traumatic. So if I go back to something that was traumatic, 
I'm going to remember how that felt. I'm going to maybe re-experience right. some of that. But if I bypass this Goldilocks zone, I think as Bessel calls it, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm not going to get anything productive done. Okay. So I have to actually find that sweet spot where I'm kind of in it <laughs> right. uh, and I'm feeling it. I think some people say you got to feel it to heal it, which is true sometimes. <laughs> but our exceptions. <laughs> right. Um so that I can, you know, we'll, we'll talk about the exceptions because that's really interesting. Um, so we can integrate that information effectively. We're actually processing the world uh, correctly uh, and we're able to uh, not go into a dysregulated, unstable panic state, okay? There's right. all kinds of ways to help people through this, which I'm sure we'll talk about some of those because you can approach this from multiple angles in order to get the job done. So, right. No, mm -hmm. I think that was a brilliant explanation. I've actually never heard it described mm -hmm. that way before. So I think that that explains it really, really well, because it is, you know, at if I'm understanding that and if I'm I'm imagining if I was a client sitting across from you and asking, like, I don't know why I freak out when I see snakes, like it doesn't make sense. And I try to tell myself the truth and it's not my body's not responding you know, it's like we have mm -hmm. to understand how our brain and our body were wired to protect us. And while right. that was helpful in the previous situation, it's not helpful now when it's not actually a snake and you're not actually in harm's way. But right. moving through that, you know, that uh, that process, um, I'm curious for you as a practitioner, when you're counseling somebody or you're they're in your office and you're uh, just kind of talking about, let's say it's the same situation. How do you determine, I'm sure it's very easy for you to determine when somebody needs uh, a modality that's not just talk therapy, because again, we're addressing the wrong part of the brain if we're just accessing the frontal lobe. So how do you, how do you observe that in a, in a patient? Um, well, uh, I think I think I'm pretty quick to use the best tools I have, and some of those would would work great with severe trauma. Um, but in my own clinical practice, I probably see a lot of clients that have already seen ten therapists and sent ten doctors, and so I can kind of rule out some traditional approaches just because they've already done those. Yeah. Uh, and there's no way they haven't been done at this point. Um, However, uh, their history could also uh, rule that out as well. So if somebody has had um, some sort of severe trauma and in, in their childhood. And that could look like, you know, were you a stressed kid? Because everyone's going to say no if they haven't done a lot of reflection. That's right. just how kids, it's like, I can admit to being a stressed kid, but not a traumatized kid. And you start to dig into their story and it was pretty horrible. Um, that's called normalization. It's what every kid does. There's like no limit to that, by the way. Okay. <laughs> so, um, but if they were a stressed kid, you know, kids aren't actually supposed to be stressed. Okay. So, right. We'll have, you know, we have a category for that. So, <laughs> but um, you can tell when somebody has had early childhood trauma, if it's chronic, the chances that talk therapy are going to cut it start to drop. And I think that's seen in research. Uh, you'll see some research that just cognitive behavioral therapy is really good. And then we see some, you know, uh, control studies where we contrasted EMDR, all of a sudden the efficacy of you know, CBT drops to the floor. And you're like, well, why was it? It did so good in this study over here. And then it doesn't do good in this contrast study. Well, it, it really depends on how you filter the participants, doesn't it? I mean, right. so if I have people who have some trauma in adolescence and some trauma in their adulthood, it's not chronic. It's not from primary care support system. It's not, maybe it is sexual, but it's one single event, or maybe it's not sexual, uh, but it's not chronic. Or, uh, um, you know, heaven forbid, it's it's uh, some sort of severe abuse from the primary support system. You're going to get very, very different results if you sort them very, very different ways. And you're going to see kind of the cards fall differently for each modality. And, and I kind of have a strong bias. I, you know, I, I believe that CBT is more of a good tool um, that you can use. I don't particularly find it to be like a specific modality for psychotherapy. That's not, that doesn't, doesn't seem to fit that. <laughs> you know, right. it's not an orientation, it's a tool. Um EMDR is a fantastic tool for uh, single-use trauma, for uh, non-chronic trauma, trauma that is, you know, after the age of seven, something like that. Um, you could use it on other types of trauma, uh, but I would think that its efficacy is going to drop. And we have fantastic studies on other approaches to trauma that work great with earlier trauma, that work great with more chronic trauma. 
And, um, you know, I would probably refer someone to go look up Ruth Lanius's 2020 study on neurofeedback. It might break your brain a little bit. It's a really, really good result. (laughs) (laughs) I will make sure to put that in the show notes too, because I want to, I want to read up on that as well, but no, I think that I, that's really, really good. Can you explain what EMDR is? Because I remember sure. yeah. mm-hmm. when for myself, when I was walking through some postpartum stuff with my youngest mm-hmm. and I was flooded with a lot of early childhood stuff that I had not dealt with, which I think is fairly common. We, we get, we get to a stage in our life where we're experiencing something that triggers something old that mm-hmm. we didn't know. Like you said, the normalization now is gone. Like all of a sudden I'm like, maybe that wasn't normal (laughs) and maybe I have some work to do. And Mm -hmm. I honestly, when I was reading up on, you know, on EMDR, I was like, this sounds amazing as a nurse. I understand how this makes sense. Like from a nervous system standpoint, but I had a lot of internal like myths or misconceptions about how it could actually help me. So can you talk about like, what is, what is EMDR? Yes, EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization Reprocessing. And EMDR is the process of having some sort of bilateral stimulation while engaging in some um, kind of directed non avoidance. <laughs> uh, yeah. And so a lot of it could be eye movement because that's what it has in the, the name eye movement, but it can be with uh, physical, you know, peppers and things like that. There's other things that people use to kind of get the job done. And um, um, I would use EMDR again for, for single use trauma, for kind of adult based trauma. Um, it, 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 it helps people do something that gives them a sense of achievement and a sense of catharsis in the process of healing that some modalities don't do. And so it can be a really fantastic tool, um, to achieve not just healing, but also kind of help them change and update their internal perspective on themselves. And you're not going to always get that from other modalities that might even be more effective, which is interesting. Um, but imagine if somebody has this thing that they are avoidant on, it could be snakes. We're just going to stick with this story, okay, of, of the, yeah. the person who's now avoidant of hoses, and they're getting triggered by all kinds of stuff that that are a lot of feelings that they may have felt at the time when they were dying in a hospital, or maybe they didn't, because they were so uh, dysregulated that a lot of those experiences were just kind of shelved at the time. Right. Um, But EMDR would ask them to do something very different than what they'd like to do on their own. And this first they have to inventory the distress. And um, then they have to, there's a lot of stages of kind of putting names to things and rating scale things. But then, but then there's a portion where they're actually leaning into the distress and the practitioner asking them to, uh, rather than be avoided, do the opposite. And it's it's very much a lot of that, a lot of um, using our containment and our rapport with the clients uh, to develop a safe enough space where they can do something that is exact opposite of what they actually want to do. Right, exactly. And, um, we do have to add a level of increased stability to the nervous system, which is why there's eye movements and why there's tapping. It's kind of like if... This is not a fair, per, per, this is not a perfect neuroscience, you know, equation to it. But, but if I could have all the benefits of jogging, without the distractions and risks, you would be able to get through a lot more things in trauma therapy than you um, could otherwise. And that's kind of what EMDR is kind of tapping into. That there's these tactile or audio visual evoked potentials in our brain that keep the neurons firing back and forth and keep the brain hemispheres symmetrical. When we look at unprocessed trauma, um, let's say when we look at people's brains who have unprocessed trauma, uh, the default mode network warps asymmetrically to the right-hand side, to the temporal parietal lobe. And that's quite literally because the part of our brain that processes um, memory and information is actually just unintegrated. Mm. And, and so it actually warps and you can see it warp. Uh, when it when it has this kind of buildup of of unprocessed content, and they generally don't get a lot of REM sleep because that's where you would process that and and resolve it. it because they, when they go into REM sleep, they get that cortisol spike. It blows right. past that you know uh, Goldilocks zone, and they they wake from a nightmare or from a terror, just being very acid. So um, you know the whole system's kind of run down. Right. <laughs> um, anyways, <laughs> the MDR helps hold them in a space where they 
can actually process that effectively because we've raised their brains, maybe their processing ability through some sort of evoked potential nervous through their through through stimulus, basically. Yeah. So I think I think the practitioner has a lot to do with that too. I feel really nervous about people doing this kind of stuff on telehealth because our frontal lobes are really engaged by the presence yes. of another person. And we don't want to minimize that any more than we have to. Right. <laughs> uh, so I, I do think that one-on-one therapy is really useful. And, and the more you're attached to the practitioner, the more that variable will play to your strengths. <clears throat> exactly. And I, I was going to ask that with, you know, anybody, and no, I don't want to say anybody, I'm going to say anybody for the sake of just making it an overgeneralization, but mm-hmm. you could, I mean, there are numerous therapists that could theoretically be trained and certified in EMDR. However, mm-hmm. my observation just, I have a lot of therapist friends. And so, you know, we have these kind of conversations all the time, just because somebody has a training or a certification doesn't actually make them skilled. So how, and I don't mean that in any kind of like critical or judgmental way, because I think any tool that we can gain access to, to improve our mental health, balance our nervous system is going to get us one step closer. But Mm -hmm. there is a difference. And mainly because sometimes I have people come back to me and they're like, I did it and I didn't really feel anything change. And I'm like, well, there should be, I mean, because you do the whole rating scale where it's like 10 out of 10 intensity. I feel that in my chest. I feel like I want to climb out of this chair, like whatever it, you know, however it feels in your body. And that should theoretically come down. Do you want to know what the number one predictor is? What is the number one? No, I want to know. I don't know what it is. Their, their attachment to their therapist. Okay. I was going to ask that. So then how would somebody, <laughs> you know, cause you can go on like psychology today and be like, I need, you know, Andrea said, I need to find a therapist that specializes in EMDR because I have some trauma I need to process. Mm-hmm. And then like 500 people come up. So is it kind of like dating? You kind of just have to get in there and find somebody that yeah. It's with yeah. you or... if, if someone, it's it's not coming that come it's not coming that people come to me and they've never seen anybody else but it, it can happen and I I always encourage them to meet a few other counselors you know okay. um, what do they know what they like you know how do they know how do they know I'm a great fit for them right. uh, you know you, you know we don't have a lot of context until we gather up a few things to contrast and um, yeah I mean it's it's not you know ridiculous to think of that as like oh I've got a I've got to get out there and I've got to interview a whole bunch of people. Like you can say, like, I've got to speed date a whole bunch of therapists, you know, yeah, like as right. much as we want to keep that, that those kind of analogies far away from mental health. Yes. <laughs> um, we do, we do need our clients to, um, yeah, it, it would be best if people actually got a lot of different experiences with a lot of different types of counselors because they're, they're very, very, very different. Um, and how do you know what you like if you've never been to therapy before? Right. And that's, that's difficult. Mm -hmm. That and the safety aspect, Mm -hmm. right. Or the, the attachment or the attunement aspect of how much can I really let myself process this maybe Mm -hmm. very emotionally intense traumatic thing. Mm -hmm. If I don't feel safe with you, like I'm not, how, how much are we really going to be able to process in that place? So I think, Mm -hmm. um, and that can develop over time too. Right. Mm -hmm. So maybe, maybe you don't actually get to the place where you're doing any, eye movement, you know, you're not doing any of the actual EMDR until maybe five or six sessions in because you have Mm -hmm. to develop that, that level of safety. Right. And, and I would imagine you want to look at the history and and that's part of the EMDR process is not just doing inventory, but also doing a history. Um, You know, some people, no matter how many times you be with them, you're not going to feel, you know, the kind of rapport that it would be ideal. Um, it could be personality, it could be temperament, it could be, um, you know, uh, style, um, it can be gender and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's not weird or unusual for, uh, clients to connect more with the opposite gender. And and while that might sound weird, the reality is we can project more about our own gender. And so we project more judgment from our own gender. Interesting. (laughs) And so, you know, we, 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 we don't, we don't project or expect, as much judgment from the opposite gender because because that they're less known to us. Um, so you know that's just a, a easy, quick way to explain why that's often the case. So. That's really interesting. Yeah, I have never I've never heard that before. So that makes a lot of sense. And so if I were to 
regurgitate a little bit of what I heard you say of how it helps. It's helping to regulate the nervous system by kind of down-regulating mm-hmm. the emotional intensity attached to whatever the person was going through. Would, well, would I would say that EMDR close? works on the other side of the, I would actually say EMDR probably works on the other side because we were increasing the brain's uh, stability during uh, higher cortisol. So I'm not sure, EMDR is interesting because I'm not sure that we are lowering the arousal with the same you know, event processing. I think we're raising the uh, the Goldilocks from the other side by okay. stabilizing the brain within that distressing experience. And so okay. uh, EMDR can be more cathartic because you can get through something worse um, and overcome it, which means that you are now someone who has done that. And that's yes. why it has kind of a more impact on our identity than what if I were able to lower the arousal level on the same event, uh, which would be less distressing. Well, that sounds right. pretty good. And it is good because it is less disruptive, um, but we aren't the person who conquered that bigger mountain right uh, and i'm not saying that pain is always gain but 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 sometimes it is uh right. life is hard we need to be someone who can take it on we want to see ourselves as someone who can take on hard things right. and uh, again there's a limit to where that's not a good idea yet. right so <laughs> no that makes a lot of sense and i i'm going to stick with your explanations because it's mm-hmm. much better than than my untrained explanations so what are some signs like for you know, for my listeners, I tend to work, I work with a lot of women for, you know, hormone balancing. It's not uncommon. Um, and there's actually mm-hmm. quite a few studies on this, but it's not uncommon for women to experience um, distressing symptoms before their period. Right. And so we're actually seeing, um, you know, like where it's they're they're experiencing maybe like more anxiety about something in the past that they were regulating before. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I observe these things and I'm looking for patterns over time that tell me, is this resolving on a physiologic level because it's maybe regulated a little bit by hormones or is there an emotional component to this that needs to be addressed? So yeah, that's a really good question. I would, I would probably break it into three categories, which, which would make it more complicated, sadly, (laughs) because we we do have our our natural personality metric, you know, like uh, how, how the, the, the technical word is neurotic. How neurotic are we? Which is in many cases, a good thing. You know, the more actual threats are out there, the more threat, uh, alert we are, the better. Um, but then we have, more anxiety in life. And that's just a personality trait that doesn't change. And, and there's, there's ways to test for that and figure out like where you are on a scale, you know, relative to your age and gender or yeah. But um, that doesn't go away. Unfortunately, we just learn to cope with it. Um, and we also learn to rely on it in a useful way because it doesn't exist for no reason. It exists for good, good, good reasons. Right. Um, there are some people who are not threat averse at all, uh, sorry, threat, threat alert at all. And, and, you know, in, in a more threatening environment, they would be the first to go. No, okay. <laughs> they're very cool, but you know, nature. I know a few of those. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you have a, you have that baseline, which is something that sometimes we do best by accepting it about ourselves. If we're like, like I'm a fairly neurotic person, again, sounds like an insult. It's actually not, it's just a personality metric. Um, and that makes me more alert to threats and I'm more concerned about threats. And, um, you know, I open mail and I'm, I'm more conscientious that mail could be a bad thing. Yeah. <laughs> Other people are open to going, hey, yeah. you know, <laughs> it's $1,000. Yeah. My brain doesn't go there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And again, some of that, some of that could be personality. And so you want to suss out maybe what's personality and what's not. And sometimes, uh, I think when you say, well, well, the, the, you know, the other part could be instabilities, um, from hormones, instabilities from autoimmune disease, autoimmune diseases. Um, you know, sometimes something's just broken, and you know we're gonna see a lot of very difficult to attribute um, experiences, <laughs> and um, especially if there's psychosis, that's gonna that's gonna multiply the issue, not 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 add to it, but multiply it. And and I've experienced those kinds of things in my clinical practice as well as you know in family. And it's difficult. Um, the third thing is maybe more like, where am I having triggers that don't match the environment that they show up with? Something or, like yeah, that. the environment, right. Yeah. 
if we could rule out the other two groups, that's the problem. Okay. <laughs> so we right. want to make sure and people do fail at ruling those two groups out. We're, we're dealing with an autoimmune disease and we're doing EBR. Good luck. Okay. <laughs> Don't do that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, but if we can rule out, you know, personality can rule out, uh, damaged nervous systems, um, then we want to look at where am I being, where do I have reactions that don't match the environment that they show up in? And then we can ask ourselves, is there a history to that experience, to that somatic sensation that I'm feeling where I feel it in my body, my throat, and my shoulders, where mm-hmm. I feel it in my stomach? Um, you know, uh, what's the history of that feeling? What's the history of that negative I am statement that comes up when I come home? And there's this thing that I see that gives me the same trigger, like the dishes aren't done. Ha, you know, yeah. uh, when we break that down in, in the clinical practice, it's not what you think it would be. You know, like maybe they, maybe the spouse doesn't feel loved. No, they say, I don't feel safe. Mm-hmm. Well, that's really different than what you would think. And it's a much larger experience than what you'd expect for something that would take 15 minutes to fix. Right. Um, you start to break it down and the house is always really messy when the house is really unsafe when they were growing up. Mm-hmm. And so when they see my house is a little messy, they feel unsafe. It's like, okay, well, that's an old feeling. And when things are not integrated, they get like stacked on top of each other like pancakes. Right. <laughs> and we always we always move that plate, <laughs> you know, the whole thing. <laughs> Whenever right. something in there gets associated, uh, we get the whole stack. And uh, and it's an, it's an accumulation of all of those experiences together. And, and um and it's old and it's and it's it's a comprehensive experience of all of the experiences. So uh, and that's a good time to consider something like EMDR. Again, if it's too long standing of a trauma and too young, I, I like to add in some other things. I think a lot of people would argue against me and say, oh, EMDR is great for early childhood sexual abuse. Uh, and I would argue that that might be that might be a position from not having other tools. Right. Um, and there are other tools that, that I would say work work really great <clears throat> and they're not as painful. <laughs> right. Right. And is that would you say that that is because I, I made a note on this. One of the exceptions to mm-hmm. you have to feel it to heal it. Is that within that realm? Right. Yeah. I think MDR is a great example of kind of where uh, and I don't know if it's where it came from, but you got to feel it to heal it is a common phrase I hear from MDR practitioners. Um, and, and again, there's a certain catharsis to going through something tough. Like if I can bring a client through something that feels like a mountain, they're going to fully believe they can tackle anything smaller in their own life, which right. is great. Cause then you will, they become a more resilient person. They become a more, um, competent person. Um, you know, things will just come their way and, and they can see themselves as somebody who can handle that. And they don't have to come back to my office to do that. They just have right. to know that they can do it and they will. Um, they won't get stumped in the future by so many other things. Um, but there are times where instead of increasing the brain's ability to get through something horrible, I need to lower the distress um, in order to um, get them through it. Yep. Um, and uh, and I think that uh, in that case, I like to use things like neurofeedback I found referrals to ketamine clinics. I know Evolve Health has been successful in taking insurance uh, wow. for most insurance providers. Uh, they're, I think they're in Clackamas. Okay. Um, I know there's a strict admittance criteria, so you have to go through, you know, a psychologist or something, I suspect. Okay. Um, but very useful. Uh, it's better to have done psychotherapy, getting you kind of the appropriate internal, you know, family system perspective on yourself before yes. doing those protocols, in my opinion. <laughs> Well, yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense, though, because you kind of have to have a, at least in, I'll just share from my own experience, because I've done both, um, and I've done Mm -hmm. EMDR as well, and they've, they're all Mm -hmm. very, I'm sorry, neurofeedback as well, um, Mm -hmm. for, you know, different modalities for different things, and they've all been useful, but having Mm -hmm. had, you know, I did, I want to say, like, one or two years of um, some combination of like talk CBT therapy. Um, and it was immensely helpful and it actually gave me language to understand what I was processing in EMDR to where then I had this cohesive story, right. Of like, this is what's happening. Oh, that makes sense because we've already walked through all of this stuff. So, but then it came a point where I'm like, okay, I've talked this 
thing into the ground. <laughs> and now mm-hmm. it's like, now I'm, but I'm still having the emotional or somatic experience mm-hmm. that is not, I'm not where I want to be yet. Like I'm not, I'm not the functioning to the degree that I want to be functioning or healthy. And, um, and there's a lot more, you know, to that story than I'm going to share on this particular episode, sure. but um, but I think that's where it is very beneficial to be working with somebody that knows when you've re- reached your limit on something and when it's time mm-hmm. to address it in a different way. Like, for example, um, I talk to a lot of my hormone clients about like, we got to get, there has to be some level of physiologic balance mm-hmm. before we can even address the emotional stuff. Like if you're not, if your B vitamins are tanked, if you're not getting enough protein, if you're not getting regular sleep, you know, if mm-hmm. you are like drinking five cups of coffee a day and you're wondering why you have anxiety, like let's get that shifted a little bit. And then we'll start working on, you know, within my scope of practice, obviously the more mm-hmm. emotional side of things. Cause some of it might just be that there's something like you said, there's something out of balance here that needs, we got to get that stability in place before we can do some of that deeper work and knowing yes. that there's room for all of it. Yeah. I, I can't tell you how many clients will come uh, to me and, you know, they've seen 10 doctors and therapists and, um, you know, we do brain mapping, QEG brain mapping, which is an interesting tool to, to see what's going on with the system. And, um, you know, uh, I'll, I'll say a case that I've seen this dozens of times. So I feel like I can tell this story. <laughs> it's like no one's one story, you know, right. um, so they say they sleep a lot and they say, great. Well, I look at their brain and there's a certain frequency. That's a vigilance kind of compensator. And then they're showing signs of fatigue. Mm-hmm. You know, their thalamic cortical system is all, you know, desynchronized and like, what's going on here? Like, yeah. What do you, you look mean? like you someone who's exhausted. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely great. Okay. So you would do a little bit of investigation and, um, you know, get some data off to their doctor. The doctor investigates and they have sleep apnea. Mm. It's like, okay, well, what would have happened if we had gone forward without that discovery? How much progress you know, would you really gonna make? Get, yeah. You're going to get pennies on the dollar for your REM sleep, which is how we actually solve trauma. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, that's where like, Things solidify. So we're doing EMDR, we're getting all escalated, we're having these epiphanies, we're coming through the experience, and then we're going and we're sleeping, and short-term memory just can't integrate into long-term. Okay. And and then what happens is that we, we we find ourselves having the same triggers as before because we didn't um we didn't finish because the last step is really important. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah, very important. Very important step. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So what I'm hearing you say is that EMDR is not just for, um, well, I'll, I'll just say it this way. This was my misconception. Um, and it was actually kind of a roadblock to me getting help with EMDR because I thought it was, well, that's only for people who are severely traumatized or only for people who have PTSD or CPTSD. And I definitely had markers of some complex PTSD, but I had not been formally diagnosed with that. And so, um, so what would you, what would you say to well, somebody there's, who maybe there's is tons using of people who that? have no symptoms of PTSD and right. still they, let's put it this way, they don't have it yet. We'll, we'll leave it at that. Okay. <laughs> I can still, so, yeah. um, but, but I, I don't think of EMDR as being kind of my favorite tool for chronic PTSD. I see it as being good for the mild to moderate stuff. Uh, with with a few specific contraindications. Now that's my opinion for my practice. So other people right. might be more skilled, but I, I have my concerns or doubts. I'll I'll say so. Yeah. There's certain things that I find I just don't want to use EMDR for this. Maybe it could be useful, but I'm going to see it hit right. its wall or its limits. Um, and and it, it, I think that it is a really popular therapy because uh, it slides under the radar of um, talk therapy, uh, psychotherapy. So you, you, there's no there's no lobbying and no you know federal right. you know documentation to try to get it covered <laughs> now right. it doesn't take decades to get there and then two um it's really easy to uh scale meaning that we can get you know a couple thousand practitioners trained a year you just can't do that with with ketamine you can't do that with um neurofeedback you know it's 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 very hard to grow these other systems and, and i think that's you know uh 
partially where some of those narratives come from, I think. Though, though I, I do believe anecdotally some practitioners could use it in a scope that others or or the average couldn't just because right. of skill and attachment. So, <clears throat> so there are exceptions. So yeah, no, that's good. And <laughs> and I think what I would kind of nutshell with that is that, well, for me, and this is again, this is how I looked mm-hmm. at it, was like that was a disqualifier for me personally, mm-hmm. when really there were things that EMDR was extremely beneficial, you know, mm-hmm. for resolving. Yeah. I've, and, I've been neuro- yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then neurofeedback mm-hmm. brought another layer to that resolve, mm-hmm. right? Because it was helping to kind of lower the intensity of the distress yes. that was happening in my brain. So, um, and there's, you know, there's a whole lot more to that. Like, why? Even if I ask what kind of neurofeedback you did? It was lens neurofeedback. So I don't oh, think okay, it's the okay, same. Yeah. I don't think it's sure, the sure. same. Sure. But, but that was, you know, 12 years ago and I know it's developed oh, yeah. mm-hmm. since then. So, right. mm-hmm. um, yeah, but this is, you know, if you're listening and you're recognizing any of these symptoms mm-hmm. in yourself and you're like, I, you know, maybe you're only, uh, the only available access you have is in your region, somebody that has the tools of EMDR. It's a great place to start, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but then also part of that learning, I think, you know, that assertiveness or learning how to be your own advocate in within the realm of your therapy experience is also recognizing when you've maybe hit a limit or a wall and then having that conversation with your provider about, you know, help even helping you to understand why am I not seeing progress in this area? Mm-hmm. We've done five sessions to resolve this one thing. Like, why is it not? Do you know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? I think it's really important yeah. to have have those brave conversations. Um, yes. Yeah. And not, and not be thinking about it. At least I don't anymore think about it as just useful for a particular diagnosis. Um, yes. Would you say that that is accurate? I, I don't find that there is a ton of congruence between when I look at the brain's electrical system using an EEG, QEG. I don't find that there's a lot of congruence between that and the DSM. Um, I think that in medicine, you know, you come, you're a nurse, you come from a medical background, uh, you know, as, as I did before, you know, I think that diagnoses traditionally somewhat in medicine reflect a mechanism of action. So if you come in with a skin rash, they're not going to diagnose you with skin rash. They're going to diagnose you with whatever that is. Um, you know, it could be an infection. It could be autoimmune. It could be cancer. And it really does matter which one of those it is. And we're going to identify something like what it actually is. And what's actually causing it and then and then mechanisms that have been researched to reasonably address that mechanism in mental health we don't do any of that you know you're depressed what does that mean it's yeah. just a bunch of symptoms how many different ways can the brain get depressed a lot yeah. a lot yeah. okay yeah. <laughs> like a lot of different ways and why how many different reasons because the brain get depressed a, a lot of different reasons they're not all the same you know, it can be, it can be, you know, hormonal, it can be physical, it can be uh, trauma related, and it does matter which one. Okay, right. you say, well, maybe, maybe there's a better diagnosis for it than that. Like, yeah, sometimes, absolutely. But, but there aren't diagnoses, uh, very often, most of them don't actually get down to, they don't get beyond describing it, just describing it better. Um, right. I'll, I'll give an example, you know, um, you know, medically, there are two types of schizophrenia. Well, when we look at the brain of brains, of people who have schizophrenia, there's like five different types. And uh, there have been studies showing that when we divide those types and look at medication utility, there are five different types, right. <laughs> you know, that they are uh, benefiting from. Uh, um, and by the way, I don't, I don't, I don't recommend specific meds or anything like that based sure. on that, even, you know, because I'm not, a, if I ever hire a doctor, that'll change. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, right. But, um, but the brain doesn't really become very congruent with the diagnostic manual. And so I don't find a lot of utility out of it. I'm pretty good at diagnosing, but it it, it doesn't uh, it doesn't offer me a clear path forward. In fact, right. I think DSM one through three actually had the first chapter on do not use any of these diagnoses to develop the treatment plans. They don't they're not congruent with treatment plans. Um, and we know that in medicine, that's that's exactly what they do. They use the diagnosis to funnel you to a treatment plan. Well, that's exactly, I was like, that is the exact opposite mm-hmm. of how it's being used, mm-hmm. at least in, yeah, in conventional mm-hmm. medicine practice. And there are times where they get it right. And other times where we completely miss, you know, yeah. and like pandas is, is would be a good example of that. Yeah. <laughs> right. Is it prescriptive or descriptive? Exactly. And it's, it's, it's descriptive. It's not prescriptive. It doesn't tell you what to do. 
Right. And so or, uh, I, I don't have a utility for it. <laughs> right. Or even why it's happening mm -hmm. in the body. Because if we understand the yeah. mechanism, like for example, mm -hmm. you know, pandas, a kid is coming in with OCD. Are we just going to treat that with mm -hmm. cognitive behavioral therapy? If it's an infectious source, mm -hmm. that doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. Like if it's yeah. an inflammatory, like you were talking about an autoimmune process, an inflammatory process, that's going to change how, you know, it's going to change how we move, move forward because we're looking at a different mechanism of action or a different mechanism of injury. Or, um, for example, this was, this was the really interesting thing, um, with my neurofeedback experience. So I actually had a, I'd fractured my skull and I, it was undiagnosed because I was in nursing school and I went to the doctor and they said, Oh, if you didn't black out, there's no way you could have had a concussion. I'm like, well, I, I did like black flashed before my eyes. I did actually feel my brain hit the back of my skull. Like maybe should look into that, you know? And they're like, no, 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 you're, you know, you're totally fine. Like, I don't know what fine means, but whatever. And I had, I had, I definitely had post-concussive symptoms for at least mm -hmm. two weeks, uh, probably longer when I look back at that mm -hmm. story of my, you know, that, that period of my life. But then none of those symptoms really came to the surface until I was postpartum with mm -hmm. my first. And um, it was like my whole thyroid adrenal axis had completely shut down. My thyroid was out of mm -hmm. control. And thankfully my naturopath had been trained in neurofeedback. He's like, can we map your brain? Like mm -hmm. I can feel the fracture mm -hmm. on your head. Like we need to look at, you know, where this is impacting you because yeah. it was causing insomnia. It was causing a lot of different, just physiologic, horrible issues. Um, but he was the one, this is the super fascinating part. When he mapped my brain, he's like, I see survival patterns in your brain. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Can you tell me like a little bit about, your childhood, like, cause that does impact your physical body. He was the first person that actually helped me to put some of those pieces together of like, Oh, you know, I need to really address the mind and the body, um, in this season really to get the healing that I need. Um, and so, but that was, that was really how I had discovered like, wait, my, my HPA axis is a hot mess in part because there was a physical injury. So if we had mm -hmm. only addressed that with maybe like medication, right. Or sleep medication for the insomnia or, um, anxiety medication for the anxiety, but we had never looked further into what was going on with my thyroid that mm -hmm. was causing it to go so high, you know, we would have never actually resolved what was happening in the body. So it's, you know, it's an extremely useful tool. And I know we'll probably right. talk about, probably do a full other episode on neurofeedback, but I find fun. it extremely, yeah, extremely <laughs> interesting because it did for me personally put pieces together for my health puzzle that I was, mm -hmm. you know, that I was very confused by. And quite honestly, mm -hmm. it was a very scary experience to have that happen, you know, mm -hmm. after having a baby and all of a sudden your body's falling apart and you don't know why, like that's, it's pretty scary for people to have to go through that. So, oh, oh yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know, uh, Michelle's my wife, you know, my wife, <laughs> she's a therapist as well at, at the clinic. Yep. Um, she's no stranger to postpartum issues. And um, after our second kid, you know, borderline psychosis, you know, oh. extreme anxiety, throwing up in the bathroom kind of level of anxiety, oh. just yep. intolerable. And so we, we did a brain map on her and her brain had shifted to what we call a fast, slow phenotype, which is mm -hmm. what you see in uh, dry drunks or, or people who just are much, much, much more functional when they drink. And that's wow. because you give them drinks and their brain behaves normally. They're literally, they show as a normal brain, basically when you let them drink. And when you don't, they, they lose their default mode network completely. They don't, they don't wow. have an expression of it. Or in her case, it speeds up and becomes, um, like it's running at, you know, two, three times the speed that it's supposed to. And, and that wow. will give you horrible, horrible panic feelings. Yep. And, um, and again, alcohol tends to normalize that stuff in these people, um, which is why they find alcohol young and then they drink forever. And, right. and the, the, the only solution for them that I know of outside of, uh, neurofeedback is to like go to AA and white knuckle it. And they can do, they can do well in AA, but they, but they have to change their whole identity to, to orient around that, um, right. which is tough. And, and they're, they're learning to live with a physiological discomfort of, of not having a default mode network. Right. You know, when we do some training on these people, 
you know, uh, it's very simple. We put some sensors on their head, just a few. And once we understand what's going on, we train down the fast rhythms, we train up the slow rhythms, five, 10 sessions in, their brain kind of gets it and you kind of see it click and okay. they'll, they'll break a sweat. They'll be like, whoa. And they'll say things like, man, I, I don't actually need to drink. This is actually why I drink. Like I just, you know, it's such a validating for them to realize, like, I just drank because I was chasing what I didn't know was normal. Yeah. And, and that's a reasonable right. thing to want, you know, right. <laughs> Uh, it, can, it can be really hard because of all the patterns of behavior and, and values that they've picked up along the way of drinking for so many years. Sometimes right. they're not the kind of person who's ready for that kind of transition yet. Not all of them. Some of them come in the door right. just ready to go. And uh, we, 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 we train up the default network and man, they get it and they love it. And, and, uh, and it is permanent after uh, a number of repetitions, it becomes permanent. <clears throat> That's amazing. So that's probably the funnest kind of client to work with. And my wife turned into one of those, ironically. So it wow. just brought the system to and left them home for a while. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And so, yeah. Well, yeah. yeah she, and she's you lucky know that from, she had direct your, access. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I do. I do sometimes wonder about our personal journeys and what they would have looked like had we not. Um, I didn't think about it personally benefiting me, uh, but I was injured in the army. Um, had a shoulder injury that developed into torticollis, which you might know what that is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's uh, kind of think about like what the hunchback of Notre Dame had, like kind of all. And I, yeah. I, I, my left, my left ear was stuck on my left shoulder for most of the month, and I'd get kind of semi loose for maybe two weeks, and then stuck again. And wow. when, I, when it initially acted up, I'd be stuck in bed for three days at least, and or something like that, one to three days actually, but it could be longer. But, it, but that was probably more common. It was very rhythmic monthly cycle that never skipped a beat for four wow. years and uh, if you've worked in orthopedics you'd know that if if protocols persist longer than 30 days it's permanent in an adult wow. and I was told by the uh, president's own physical therapist that I would not beat this um, that it was permanent and uh, I took on physical therapy for years to no avail you know um, and I tried neurofeedback uh, for migraines and the protocols vanished I wasn't wow. expecting that. I wasn't trying to do that. It was actually really mm-hmm. uncomfortable and nervous yeah. the, because just it, just the flare up not happening created panic for weeks because I thought the pattern was at least the one nice thing about it was I could plan my life. Right. You know, uh, yeah. I, was, I was choosing to build my own clinic because I couldn't work for anybody else. I didn't have enough sick time in any job ever to miss, right. you know, three days a month, or sorry. Yeah. Three days a month about to, that was my, that was a minimum amount I needed to miss. Uh, it seemed about that. And um, wow. so so I personally went from, you know, and I have all my army paperwork. I'm actually going to publish a small book and put my story in there. And I'll actually have the copies of the medical files on there. That's awesome. But so between myself and, and again, the president's own physical therapist told me that physical therapy would only slow down the inevitable descent into a wheelchair, uh, which is where I'd be at this point in my life. Right. Um and then my own wife having, you know, anxiety that is uh, not uh, conducive to to live with. <laughs> right. Well, both yeah. for herself and, right, mm-hmm. for herself and for yeah. everybody mm-hmm. else at home, right? It's, yeah. So, yeah. So fast forward, both of our journeys without it. And I, I have no imagination for how horrible that would be. But that's right. what most people have. Yeah. You know, these terminal kind of situations. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And I think that's, I think that's, uh, it's really humbling to think about that sometimes. <laughs> it is absolutely. And mm-hmm. I mean, I think about the same thing. I had one, uh, one, I don't want to say episode of neurofeed, one treatment of neurofeedback and mm-hmm. all of the insomnia that I'd been experiencing for nine months up to that point was, mm-hmm. I was like, I went to bed, like, okay, I'm just going to like mentally mm-hmm. prepare that I'm going to be awake at two or three in the morning and not be able to shut my brain off. And I slept you know, cause that what had clued it in was my daughter was sleeping through the night by that point. So mm-hmm. I thought I was just waking up because she was waking up, but really I wasn't, I was actually having insomnia. And so that mm-hmm. is what actually made me a believer in neurofeedback. Then I started reading all of the research articles and I was like, holy crap, how does nobody mm-hmm. know about this? Um, and which is still my mm-hmm. thought on, you know, both EMDR and neurofeedback, but also just, the, we're working uh, on that, Andrea. I won't, yes. We'll get there. Don't worry. I got. Yeah. I, I, won't, I won't burden you with that details in this podcast, but oh. it will be a story in two years. Yeah. 
which is going to be amazing. And, mm-hmm. but this is the thing that I want to encourage the listener about is that it takes a tremendous amount of effort mm-hmm. on people who are doing the research to actually bring the reform. So mm-hmm. if you're in that place where you're like, I'm stuck with these symptoms, number one, know that the modalities are out there. There are mm-hmm. modalities out there just because your doctor isn't talking to you about them or your mm-hmm. therapist isn't talking to you about them does not mean that they're not well-researched. Um, mm-hmm. It does not mean that there's not you know evidence-based practice um, on these things available for you, but two it's, I mean, I, we were talking about this before we started recording, even with pandas, my daughter has pandas. She's well into her recovery, but we're not there yet. There's still layers that we need to address with that. Um, that's been around for 40 years by this point. Mm -hmm. And it just now in the last year, did they get insurance for insurance companies to recognize that it's a diagnosable, like coverable, Mm -hmm disorder mm-hmm. 40 years yeah. so there are people like josh there are people like me i'm not really like heavy in the research realm of pushing things mm-hmm. forward but that are doing the work and you know putting the footwork in there to bring these therapies you know so that we can eventually someday hopefully <laughs> get insurance coverage insurance to recognize mm-hmm. the validity and the necessity um, of Mm -hmm. treatments like this. So I just want to say thank you for what you do. I think the work that you and your wife and your clinic are doing is absolutely amazing. Um, I send people to you all the time. I don't know if they say that, but I do refer people to you guys all the time. Um, I'm looking forward to getting neurofeedback for myself at some point in the near future. Um, but what would you say, uh, maybe just a, a word of encouragement for the listener. I know you treat a lot of different symptoms, but maybe that's fearful of trying again, because I think we both actually work with groups of people, at least for me, I get a lot of women, they've tried everything like for their hormones. So there's a little bit of that, that fear or that hopelessness of what if I try and it's not the thing that I need. So what would you say to the listener who might be feeling that way? So first of all, you, you can be stronger than you think you can be. Um, We, we can become something like infinitely resilient. Um, we're not going to figure everything out. We're not going to find solutions for everything. We're not, okay? Um, there is beauty in what we can become through things, nonetheless. Um, and and, and uh, I don't know how to articulate that well sometimes, but I do see it. My clients teach me this often. <laughs> um, and it's not extremely reassuring, I'm sure. <laughs> but we have to find the things that let us move one step forward at a time and those are the things that we're willing to do, the things that we're able to do, and nothing else is even worth looking at. Uh, sometimes you, you just yeah. have to look at what am I willing to do, what can I do, and 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 that's that's the pool that you can draw from. And sometimes that's really slow because uh, you know maybe what I can do or what I'm willing to do is is just do some self care um, and focus on a little bit of taking in a little bit of learning, a little bit of education, maybe watching a podcast. Right. Uh, and that's one thing that I love about you know the decade that I live in. There's the best information in the world is available to everyone. Uh, it doesn't cost anything. Uh, it's it, it, virtually everyone has access. Um, you know, you can go down to local university and, and get a little bit of education, but that's just local talent. You have hundreds of thousands of talented individuals putting their stuff online for free and, and they're going to blow away whatever you can get locally. Yep. <laughs> it's just the truth. It's true. It's true. <laughs> and and, and so, so they can absorb something while they're doing whatever they have to to get by or, or hold it together. And um, there is a study that's worth understanding. It's done on uh, pain and opioid, and I, but I, opioids, so medications, pain medications. I think it's worth understanding from a theory standpoint. Um, if people are left in suffering for chronic pain, after two years, there's a noticeable and progressive increase in their pain tolerance. Wow. And there's no limit to that. And I could give stories, you know, working at Walter Reed, about the little old lady who had bone and bar arthritis, who thought it was stiffness. She didn't. She didn't feel pain. She just had. You know, came on gradually her whole life because she didn't do anything crazy, yeah. and and she she did not want the knee replacements, the bilateral knee. She didn't want them. She didn't. She didn't thought that was necessary. Um, and and then then seeing another person come through with with 25% arthritis, and uh, in the knees and and being in extreme pain, and wanting whatever anyone could give him. If we give somebody pain medication, you know, for chronic pain, 
the research shows that after two years, there's a decrease from baseline on pain tolerance, and there's no limit to that either. And wow. so what we reach for really, really, really matters. Um, there's been legislation that keeps getting kicked down the road to ban uh, opioids for chronic pain for this reason. Um, you know, if you hear this podcast, I'm not recommending any changes. I'm not recommending anyone do anything specific with pain meds or anything like that, but that we, we do want to be careful what we reach for. Yes. Um, and, 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 and so while you're suffering, <laughs> know that time is actually your ally, you know, in time we do improve. We do become a more resilient version of ourselves Absolutely. if we don't reach for the wrong things. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and, exactly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and just encouragement that it does take mm -hmm. courage to reach out. It does take yeah. courage to take that step and say, you know what, I'm willing to try again, even if it means maybe it's not the right fit or, um, or it's not the right fit for right now, but it is, you know, it does take a tremendous amount of courage to get your butt in the chair, you know, mm -hmm. And start mm -hmm. opening up a conversation about what might be going on. So if you're listening and this resonated with you on any level, I just want to encourage you to go find Joshua in their clinic. Um, I'm going to put the links in the show notes, but Josh, do you have any, any final parting words? Um, just that I would encourage your listeners that there's lots of stuff out there and the world is getting better, far faster than it's getting worse. And that's actually not been obvious throughout human history, but it's very obvious now. There's cures for things being developed every year. There's uh, advancements in treatment that are being discovered every year. Um, and 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 if, if you're coming at it from a purely objective standpoint, there's reasons to be optimistic. And I really, really do believe that. Um, now we don't get that message from the media. We don't get that message from social right. media. We don't get that message from, from anywhere, but it is true. Nonetheless, it's in the statistics. The world is getting better far faster than it's getting worse. And, um, and there's reasons to stay in the game and there's reasons to continue fighting and there's reasons to continue looking for good tools to make our lives better when we're suffering, uh, and to not give up. And I really do, I really do feel that. <clears throat> Absolutely. Well, that is, yeah, that was like seven amazing bullet points that I'm, I'm sure we're going to put in. No, really good, really, really good encouraging stuff because we forget. And that it kind of goes back to what you look at or what you reach for. We agree with it, right. Kind of subconsciously. And so, um, so I love what you shared about, you know, reaching for the right things and the right things are filled with hope and we do have a bright future. And, you know, if I, if I look back at myself, you know, 12 years ago, sitting in that naturopath's chair, feeling like I'm falling apart and just where my life has come from that point, like you were saying, you know, with you and Michelle, it's, it's amazing what we can recover from and not just recover from, but become a better version of ourselves. Yeah. Through yeah. It. I did a little bit of, I did a little bit of, uh, um, work with individuals who are at the Center for Intrepid in, at Walter Reed, which is basically a rehabilitation facility that gets um, amputee patients on top of Mount wow. Everest and all kinds of stuff. And there's actually tons of soldiers that do that. It's absolutely mild, wild. And you're like, well, what does that mean exactly when a, 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 you know, a double amputee climbs Mount Everest? What does that mean? And, you know, what, what does it mean when somebody with no legs does something that typically requires legs that they couldn't do before the injury. Right. And, and I think that we need to remind ourselves that we don't know who we could be across time. We, we, we don't have a great vision for the future sometimes, um, but we can be something that we would be impressed by. Right. Um, and, and I think that uh, that can happen, um, not just can happen, but it's worth pursuing. It's eminently worth pursuing. <laughs> Absolutely. Mm -hmm. No, so encouraging. Thank you so much for taking the time to nerd out with me on this topic of trauma and EMDR. Um, I want to have Michelle on eventually and chat about some other, um, some other things. So I'm going to reach out to her for that. Um, and we will definitely do another episode specifically a little bit more on neurofeedback and maybe some case studies that might yeah. be fun. Um, that would, that would, I've got, I've got a few case studies I'm allowed to use that I have releases for and uh, uh, a lot of pretty pictures of brains and things like that. That cool. would be a lot of fun. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. I'm, I'm always game and, for that. Neurofeedback is a big topic. It is a mm -hmm. huge topic. And that's why I'm like, we, we probably need to devote at least 
definitely one, but maybe two episodes to that one. I'm, I'm thinking so, um, but if you're listening, make sure to go follow alternative behavioral therapies in Vancouver, Washington, you can Google them. Um, they have an amazing, amazing practice there. Um, so if any of this resonated with you, obviously don't hesitate to reach out to me. I have quite a few referrals in the area. If you're struggling, um, don't hesitate to reach out to Josh um, directly. And thank you so much for listening. Thanks for being here, Josh. Thank you. Thanks for having me.